On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, the servants had drawn who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume you. So the Jews said to him, What signs do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. James is going to come up and teach to us now. <laughs> well, if you keep the uh, outlines open and the Bibles there, your Bibles are open, that would be good. Great. Well, let's pray, shall we? Father in heaven, thank you for uh, your amazing mercy, your amazing generosity, your gift of your son. We pray that you will help us today to see him clearly. We'll see his glory and so believe and have life. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good, good to see you here. Uh, hopefully we'll uh, touch on a subject today, these judgments, um, that we will see add on board um, over the weekend and you can dig deeper in what's going on. Um, I don't know about you when you open up your media streams on whatever social network you're on or whatever news channel you watch, but as we are bombarded by news, it's hard not to become cynical, isn't it? It's hard not to become worried or anxious 
of what is to come in our world. I think your generation, your generation, which is uh, Generation Z, isn't it, has a certain, certain cynical but often realistic view of life, whether it's the environment or racial equality or social justice, uh, all these issues, it can lead to a certain amount of despair and hopelessness. Life's messed up, man. That doesn't sound so good in an English accent, does it? But life's messed up. What can be done? You see signs of what is now, the signs of our world, and you think, what will the future be? It may not be so rosy. As I get older, because I'm Generation X, you see the same mistakes happen again and again. And as you get older, you think, well, do we ever learn? It's hard to see how there's any hope when there's so much evil and suffering and death, which there's always been. Yeah, uh, we're kind of saying we thought maybe pandemics come every hundred years, but the article sort of suggests that it looks like COVID is the sign that actually it's the start of what is to come. That is, don't put away the face masks just yet. What are other signs that you see around us today that show what tomorrow will be like? What were those signs? 1% of the wealthiest today, uh, sort of having 90% of the wealth, whatever it is, what's that a sign of to come? The fact that last year, even though COVID sort of stopped everything, maybe atmospheric carbon is still very high, temperatures still rising, what does that say about what is to come? On the positive side, that march for women and their safety that's actually maybe a positive sign. Does that sign point to a safer future? That demonstration, that march, we hope so, don't we? We long for justice. We long for evil to be cleared up. We long for a day that evil is cleared away. And I hope there, uh, where the mess is all cleared and gone. In the narrative we just read, John chapter 2, there are signs that point towards a future time. A future time not of despair or of hopelessness, but of hope. A time of peace, a time of joy, but a time of justice when evil is destroyed. Let me show you how I think that's the case. John chapter 2 is really the start of Jesus and his ministry uh, for real, uh, of what he's doing. And John chapter 2 begins to tell you more about him, and in particular, that's the second point today, signs of the time showing Jesus' glory. So what we're going to see today is signs pointing to what is to come, but it shows you who is bringing that time, who is bringing those along. And of course, it's Jesus and his glory, and we'll explain more about that in a minute. And there's two signs to show who Jesus really is. The first is a sign of coming salvation in chapter 2, verse 1 to 11, and a sign of coming judgment in chapter 2, verse 12 to 22. Although we'll see that it's more than just judgment. It's actually a sign of Jesus and his glory. So let's look briefly at the first sign, a sign of coming salvation that shows Jesus' glory. Chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. And you've already looked at this. If you have a faculty group, you've already seen this. Um, but it sets the scene for what is going to happen in our second half. 
And we're told this sign, the first sign, happens at Cana of Galilee. And did you notice in verse 11 what it says? What does that show? It shows Jesus' glory. Glory has got this idea of splendidness. I don't know in English, splendiferous, I don't know. You know, brilliance, brightness, uh, the sort of shininess. It shows off who you really are as who you are. And it's odd that John really has chosen this sign as the first sign of Jesus' glory. I mean, why not choose something like a resurrection? You know, you raise someone from the dead. Surely that will show you how good you are. Maybe uh, heal someone or maybe drive out a demon to show who you really are. So why has John shown this sign to show Jesus' glory? Well, perhaps, as you saw in your Bible studies, you'll know that back in Isaiah 25, uh, it promises a day a day where God will bring a day of salvation. Verse 6. Now the Lord of armies will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will destroy the covering which is over all peoples, the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken, and it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation. What's good wine a picture of? Good wine is a picture of God's long-awaited salvation. What will that day be? It will be brought by God himself. It's a joy, a day of lavish joy and lavish celebration. That's the idea of aged wine, isn't it? A good meal is had on that day. Justice will be established. Do you see verse 8? He says, the removing of sin's shame, the covering of shame. Sin and shame are synonymous with each other in the Bible. And so that, that shame is going to be uncovered. That is, it's going to be got rid of. Death will be removed for, for all time. All the earth will know this. All the earth will know this salvation. They will know God's mercy. They will know God's salvation. When I was walking home um, one time when I was studying in Sydney and I was living on the North Shore of Sydney, uh, just out of nowhere this guy says, come in, come in uh, and try some wine. And I went, oh, okay, I like that idea. So I walked into the bottle shop that he was in there and I, I, he said, come and taste the wine which is voted the best in all Australia. And I went, wow. Of course, I didn't know anything about wine. And actually, it was actually okay. But when I was sort of drinking it, I was, how much does it cost? Oh, it's like, uh, between $800 and $1,000 a bottle. Thanks. Uh, I had no idea what good wine was. But in Cana of Galilee at the wedding, the MC knows exactly what good wine is. And he knows that the wine that has come is the best. See, as Jesus turns water into amazing wine, it's a sign of the time. Salvation is coming, and Jesus is the one bringing it. The wine sign points 
to who he is. It points to his glory, his shining splendidness, his brilliance. It shows that God's generosity is on display as Jesus turns water to wine. Sin will be taken away. Death will be gone forever. The sign, though, points to Jesus bringing salvation. That's the nature of signs. They point to what is to come because it hasn't come yet. Do you notice in verse 4, he says, my hour has not yet come. And you think, what's he, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the hour of his death and his resurrection. My hour of glory has not yet come. It is coming. It will come. Sin will be dealt with. Death will be dealt with. This is a sign of Jesus and his glory, but it's a sign of what will happen. Now, you might say, where is that day of salvation? I mean, you know, we sit here 2,000 years later, and if you're a believer in Jesus, you'll know that Jesus did die, and he did rise again, and he was glorified. But I still see suffering. I still see death and injustice. I still see what every other Gen Z sees. Evil. Everywhere. Injustice that we were talking about at the beginning. Pain, death. It doesn't seem any different, does it? What's happened to this salvation? Well, when I was at uni, I remember going for a few walks in Wales. And mountains, I went for two mountains. It's amazing. I don't think I'm going to go I didn't walk these mountains somewhere. And I remember when we would go on, the, we'd look at the mountains and I'd say to my friend, hey, we've got to get to that peak. Yes, we should. <laughs> anyway, once you start walking, you come to the, you come to, and you, you haven't quite reached the peak. You come to the first peak and say, well, that's not it. And then you go, oh, but there's, it's so there. So you keep walking, and you keep walking, and three hours later, you eventually reach the peak that you're getting to, don't you? And the reason is because when you look at a bunch of mountains like that, you don't quite get the perspective of distance. And it's like that when you come and you read the Old Testament. You don't get the perspective of distance and time. You see it as a day ahead of you. One day that shows what salvation was be like. Right? But as you go on, you see the distance and time towards the events. So coming up on the screen, you'll see here. Actually, think of it. This is what we're like here. We're in this age right here. We're in this age which is in decay and suffering, which I talked about at the beginning, which we all experience, don't we? But when Jesus comes, it's like the first mountain peak. Right? You, you have this age of salvation, which is beginning as Jesus dies and rises again. But there's a second mountain peak. And that second mountain peak, that second time, if you like, is when Jesus returns to save, when sin and death will be done away with. And then we will enjoy sin and death removed. Then we will enjoy justice. Do you see? So the time, in one sense, is John 2, which is about here. This hasn't happened yet. My hour has not yet come. But there's also a time which we look forward to where Jesus will return to save where there was no more sin and suffering in death. We will see salvation in full. We wait for that day. We wait for it. I was a 40-year-old man, right? So, uh, 
They await and they long for the day when Jesus will return. The sign of the wine shows that Jesus died and rose again, but he is coming back to save us. Friends, are you tired? Are you fearful? Are you anxious about what you see on the TV? Are you in despair about what you see around us? And in one sense, well, it's good that you're realistic. It is good that you see what you see. It's good and it's realistic that we don't have confidence in what man does to solve evil and death. No human reason or philosophy over the last two or three hundred years has helped us so far. In fact, it put us in a bigger mess. No, the only way for salvation from evil and death, for salvation that is coming, where sin is put away, is through God's Son, Jesus, when he returns. I've noticed in the last 20 years, that's one of the advantages of getting older, actually, that you can actually observe life and you can observe what goes on in the world, is that there's a popular teaching within Christian circles that somehow we can bring God's kingdom, we can bring salvation through social justice and what we're doing now. Because social justice has become really big amongst Christians. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But it may be synonymous with the fact that actually our generation wants to look for a cause to get behind. Well, I hate to burst the bubble, but doing good in our world does not bring God's kingdom. It doesn't bring God's salvation. It's good to do good things, don't get, don't get me wrong. It's good to fight for social justice. It's good to do those things in our world which are helpful. And I'm glad there are people who fight what is good. I'm glad they fight just for justice. But it's actually only like a band-aid on gangrene. For our world is in decay. And as long as this present evil age is here, it will be in decay. We wait for another day for renewal. The day when Jesus returns. Be careful of the teaching says that we, we bring God's kingdom or salvation through doing good or social justice. It's just not the case. It's not what the Bible says. We bring God's kingdom when we proclaim Christ as glorious Lord because he is the king of the kingdom. If you want to get stuck in with God's mission to bring about God's kingdom, well, get stuck in with our mission statement. I said I might bring in the mission statement in all three of these first three talks of this letter. Proclaiming Jesus Christ at university. Why do we do that? Because it brings God's salvation. It brings God's kingdom in. It brings God's rule. Do you have that hope? The hope that comes with knowing Christ. Are you ready for that day of Jesus' return? See, we can have that hope. And we have that peace our world is crying out for. We can have it, but it's not a pipe dream. When we trust Jesus, when we know Christ, when we know his word, all evil 
will be wiped away. We trust that all evil is wiped away and we wait with eager expectation. A day of great rejoicing of his coming. A day of reckoning for those who do not know the Lord. Now that's what the second sign, I think, points to. And immediately, it's not that immediately obvious, but I think he alludes to it in our second sort of sign, a sign of coming rule and judgment. For the time to come is not just about salvation, it's also about his rule and his judging. Verse 13, take a look. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, I can't assume you know much about the temple. But the temple was where God's people came to actually worship God. And they worshiped God through sacrifices in that little bit there. The outer courts were places where they gathered to hear God speak and pray. And uh, as I say, right in the center is where animal sacrifices were made. But when Jesus gets there, right, he comes. And when he gets there, he doesn't like what he sees. Verse 15. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with a sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. There's perceptions of Jesus, isn't there, out there? You know, Jesus, meek and mild, and he's carrying the lamb, and he's gentle. Some sort of new age, hippie, surfy kind of Jesus, perhaps the impression you give. But actually, this view of Jesus, when you see here, is a long way off from that, isn't it? It's almost violent. Now, at first, it looks like he's sort of not so keen on people selling animals or changing money. It sort of looks like he's anti-trade, maybe he's anti-capitalism, maybe that's the problem. You know how some people make Jesus out to be this socialist, socialist, Marxist, revolutionary Jesus? Have you ever heard that before? Was that view of him there? But I don't think that's it. You would need animal sellers for sacrifices because people would come from all over the place. Can you imagine sort of walking for three days with your sheep or your goat all the way? No, you had animal sellers so you could buy sacrifices for the temple sacrifices. And you need money changers. You know why? Because every year around that time, you'd have to pay a temple tax. And so people came from all over the Roman Empire and all different types of money. So it was natural that they had to, put, uh, they had to pay their temple tax in, in the Jewish uh, coinage, if you like. So it's not the money changers, the problem. So what's, what's going on? Why does Jesus say, take these things away? Why is he so angry? If you look at verse 17, you see it's important. It says, zeal for, my, zeal for his father's house will consume him. And it refers to Psalm 69. And Psalm 69, we don't have time to go and have a look, but it was about God's Messiah, David. David's God's king, God's anointed king. He had a godly concern for the purity of all that went on in the temple. And he faced lots of hostility, opposition, but he was still concerned about godly worship. And he had that concern for what went on, because God's glory, God's presence, God himself was dwelling there. The temple, that sort of high bit there, was a place where God's name dwelt.
Jesus has that concern as God's son too. I was trying to look uh, for uh, uh, an illustration on purity because Jesus is concerned for the purity of God's place or God's temple. Um, but I thought that's not necessary because actually the Old Testament also talks about a day when God would come, that day of salvation that we saw earlier, that day of salvation was also a day of judgment. In Malachi 3, the Lord, whom you are seeking, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of the armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears, for he is like a refiner's fire and like a wanderer's soap, and he will sit as a smelter, a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present the Lord offerings in righteousness. In fact, in verse 5, if you read on, that day was signified by the Lord is coming near to judge, and he will destroy those who rebel against him. Do you see, the Lord's coming is actually characterized by severe testing. That's the idea of fire and gold and silver being purified. It's like fire purifies gold and silver, all the impurities are burnt away. Testing by fire. God is coming to see if what they are doing in the temple is sound. And that's what making a judgment is, isn't it? It's weighing something up to see if something is good or bad. Testing is like judging language. He's coming to see. He's coming to test. And when Jesus comes, he is testing. He is making judgments about what is going on. And what does he find? What is he so angry about? Seems as though trade has encroached on worship, pure worship. Worship is being watered down. And the priests who were in charge of the temple had let it happen. What were the temple courts for, remember? The temple courts were for meeting God, for prayer, for solemn reflection and heartfelt worship. And what had its focus become? Bustling trade central. The issue is that it's happening in the temple courts, when the temple courts were for worship. Worship is being compromised, unpurified, if you like, by trade. And Jesus will not have it. He drives them out. I don't know if you were here last week, but Jesus said... He sees all and he knows all. He knows what's going on with all of us. He's, and, and here he sees right through all the external religious facade that's going on. He three, sees through that empty religion. And he, he knows all that's going on in our hearts too. When we come to church, when you go to Bible study, or even when you come here now, he knows where your loves really lie. He knows where our loves really lie. He knows what we really desire. See, what's it for you? What competes for true worship for you? Does it mean maybe sports? Perhaps money or the love of it? Relationships? 
the desire for a husband and wife, does that consume you such that God is put second place? What is it for you? Does God make your heart sing? Or does something else? What really excites you in life? That shows you whether your religion is pure. See, Jesus sees right through the thin veneer of religion that we have, and he exposes it for what it is. Get rid of these things. They don't belong here. If you think about it, that's some pretty big claims, isn't it? Someone comes in and he makes them feel pretty uncomfortable. I mean, when he speaks Jesus, he makes us feel uncomfortable too, doesn't he? I remember uh, last year, end of last year, I had a 360 review of ministry. So all the stuff go through a 360 review, which means that someone above you assesses what your ministry is like, and those, your peers, students, all around, they give feedback on what you're doing and a critique of how you're going. And uh, it makes me feel uncomfortable a little bit when people make judgments on me, especially Rob, because he's my leader and he gave me a lower score than anyone else. Anyway, it made me feel quite uncomfortable. Jesus is actually making them feel more than uncomfortable. This is actually a head-on collision with the Jewish way of worship. Do you notice verse 18? Look. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? They want to know who he is. Who are you? You see, in Malachi, it was God who was coming to the temple to judge it. Show us your authority with a sign, you Jesus. Show us you really are who you say you are. They're obviously angry. They're riled up. They want to know who he is. And Jesus answered them, verse 19, take them. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You can think, how does that answer the question that they were asking? You're going to do that now. As you think about the person next to you, just this person. What's the sign that Jesus has God's authority to judge? What's the sign that God's, he's got God's authority to do the things he's doing in the temple? Why is this the sign that he has God's authority to judge? And why does Jesus use the language of temple? Go on, just for a few minutes. Have a, have a, have a go. person next to you. Okay, thanks. Don't worry, I think this has taken me quite a few years to actually understand what's going on, so if we didn't get it in two minutes, it's fine. Jesus comes in judgment. He comes to purify all that's going on in the temple. What is the sign of his authority to do such things? Well, as usual... Um, it's, he, he doesn't answer in quite the way you would expect him to, um, but I think he's got something to say to them and to us. Well, he's going, he says, destroy this temple. He's, of course, talking about what will happen as he is crucified, and then three on the third day, he'll be raised from the dead. And he seems to be saying, when you see that sign, 
his raising from the dead, you will know who he is and his authority. See, in verse 22, do you notice the disciples, they were, when they see the resurrection, they believe the word that he has spoken, and he believed the scriptures. And you think, why? Why is that the sign that proves that he has God's authority? Well, firstly, the scriptures said that God's Christ, God's anointed king, which John has already alluded to from Psalm 69, he will be the ruler who rules over all. In Isaiah 53, it says one day that a servant of the Lord who will be put to death for sin will see the light of life. So there are scriptures which point to God's king, God's servant, also ruling forever. So that's true. But, and as I went through this on Tuesday after I was editing, editing my talk, so you always get the better talk on Thursday, by the way. Um, it's, it's in what Jesus says that's really key. Do you notice? He says, I will raise it up. I will raise it up. That's an extraordinary claim. For what is he claiming? He's claiming that he has the authority over death itself. In other words, I have life in me. I have God's life in me. The authority to lay down life and the authority to raise it up. And you will see that as we go through John. Because in John 5, he says that he has that authority. And in John 10, he says, I have the authority to raise it up. And when you see him raise Lazarus from the dead, what does he say? I am the resurrection and the life. I have the authority to give life and I have authority to take life away. You see, the resurrection is the sign that Jesus has that authority over everything, over life and death and everything. So his answer is much bigger to them than they were expecting. What authority have you got to do these things? I have the authority over life and death. I'm God. You will see God's glory as I am raised. And I think that's why he uses the idea of temple. Because the temple was where God's glory dwells. It's where God's glory lives. And so when you see the resurrection sign, you will see God's glory displayed on display. Because he, has the, he will raise from the dead. Let's look at our timeline. It's not just that he died, but his resurrection will show his glory. In his resurrection will not only show he's Christ, God's anointed, but... That he is God himself. Friends, have you recognised him as this glorious king? This God-man king, if you like, the son of man. I think our world is double-minded about judgment, isn't it? We want justice, that's what we want. We want injustice in our world to be judged, to be wiped away. Social ills to be got rid of. And yet, we don't want anyone interfering in what I'm doing, in who I am. We don't want our personal lifestyles to be judged. My choices don't judge me. My alcohol use don't judge me. My sexuality don't judge me. My right to choose don't judge me. 
But you see, you can't have both. You can't have justice without judgment. And if God is really just, he's got to judge everyone equally. And he's going to judge everyone equally according to his standards. And what's Jesus saying? In me is the glory of God. Your lies will come up against him and his shining, brilliant character. The sign of Jesus' resurrection will show his blinding glory as God's king. Jesus does have God's authority to judge according to God's righteous standards. And we all will fall short. We all fall short. When our lives come under his scrutiny, when our lives are compared against his character, without a way out, well, we're all in trouble. We're all in desperate need. But of course, if God's glory does dwell in him and he is God, and he has the power to judge, he's also got the power to save. He has the power to bring life. That's the point, I think, of why John puts the first sign of the wine. Why? Because that sign pointing towards his graciousness, it's saving us. Saving us from the power of sin and death, which is what the point of the sign was. Both signs show who Jesus is. Both signs show his glory. And both signs show Jesus' glory so we might believe. That's our last point today. To believe and have life. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. That's what he's going to say in the very next chapter. But that he might save the world. Jesus is the glorious judge. He is the glorious king. He's coming to bring judgment. He's coming to rule, but he's coming to bring salvation. And the joy of the blessing of forgiveness and relationship of God as Father through the Son. That's life. That's why this first sign is there, the why. He wants us to actually come and join the feast. Join his kingdom. Join the celebration of living as God's forgiven child and join this life without end in joyful celebration. That's why verse 11 and verse 22 are there, by the way. The disciples, when they see the signs, what do they do? They see his glory, they see his God, and they believe. Think about Thomas in chapter 20. We looked last week. What does he do when he sees the sign? After the resurrection, with his fingers in his hands, in his side, what does he say? My Lord and my God. My Messiah and my God. Will you do that? See, will you put your trust and confidence in Jesus as Lord and God, as Saviour and Judge? God does not want to condemn But if you've started with Jesus as Lord, again, which is most of us here, will you continue? These signs are actually for us too. That we know the glory of God. We know his amazing grace, his amazing salvation afresh. And to rejoice even more in the salvation you know. And to fear him even more greatly in his coming judgment. To joyfully trust in the glorious Christ who reigns forever, my Lord and my God. Shall we pray?
Father, thank you for pointing us to the way of salvation. And it's through your Son, the Lord Jesus, the one who died and was raised, and in so doing, showing who you are and your glory and what you're really like. Pray, Father, that we too would trust in him. Trust in not just seeing those signs, but also believing the word that he is from you and he is of you and your glory shines through him. Help us to be, in one sense, always in great admiration and great um, fear of who your son is so we might bow the knee and rejoice at the salvation he's brought us. And in his name we pray. Amen. Hey guys, my name is Rosa, I'm a second year nutrition and dietetics student and I'm going to lead us in prayer, so would you join me? Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the blessing that it is to gather and to hear your word taught to us at our own university campus. Thank you for the wisdom from the Bible that we've heard just now and the importance of sharing your gospel about Jesus to everyone, that we can have hope in you even when the times in the future seem evil and uncertain. We also want to thank you and praise you for onboard campus coming up this weekend. Thank you for the 117 people who have registered for onboard. From the first years all the way up to the last years, God, that's so amazing. In these last few days of preparation, we pray for the people on the camps team organising all of the details. Thank you for their commitment to serving you and we pray your peace over them as everything happens this weekend. We want to bring before you the staff teaching this weekend at Onboard. Thank you for their dedication to you and all that they're doing through Uni Bible Group. We pray that they will remain faithful in their service to you, God, and that you would guide them by your wisdom in everything that they do. We also want to thank you for the wonderful MTS workers that we are blessed to have at Uni Bible Group. We pray that they will remain steadfast in your love and will continue to grow in their training in your word. We also want to thank you, Lord, for the evangelism team and the work that they do to encourage us to seek opportunities to share the gospel. We pray that you would bring opportunities across our path this week to share the good news about Jesus with our non-Christian friends, whether that's with our classmates, just going to the front class. And we also pray that their hearts would be softened towards your word. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name.